First is uh, talk about spiritual friendship. Yeah, I think you get a feeling for what that's about, the importance of it. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you know, we have the model of the Buddha sitting alone under the Bodhi tree, uh, silent, introspective, uh, you know, coming from an ascetic background and then encouraging his disciples to go off and seek lonely places, roots of trees, lonely places, meet things, contemplate things, take things internally. You know. And we have this kind of exhortation. And yet here we have uh, nobody sitting under a tree on their own. In fact, difficult to find a tree without somebody else sitting under it, apart from it's raining. A sense of com- community. And it's something that the Buddha himself very much encouraged, actually. He said the spiritual, even his own, after his own awakening, he realized what would be suitable for, for other people was his whole, his whole kind of way of living. His own, only reason to continue being around, really, was to work for the benefit of other, other people. Thought what, you know, so his teachings are the expedient means to which we can, in fact, deepen our ability to be with ourselves. You know, deepen and strengthen our ability to be with ourselves, which for many people is rather challenging. You know, can you imagine what it's like just to be on your own, with no radio, telly, newspapers, books, music? Can you imagine what it's like to spend a few weeks like that? You know, for many people that's with nothing to do. That's really challenging. So, you know, to, to be on your own doesn't it means you know to be that separated from these things that we can do, things that we can be, things we can fill ourselves up with is very challenging. So, you need some support for that. The two primary supports: one is internal, Yonisō Manasikara, the guided attention, skillful attention to really focus on what's skillful and good in yourself and bring that up. And no point being mindfully aware of all your faults. <laughs> you know, actually you've got to base it upon the good, the comfortable, the peaceful, the aspiring, and really bring that up and focus on that. And the other export is, the other support is Kalyanamita, spiritual friends. Mm. The spiritual friends are the people who can who can help you to do that and help you to see the good in yourself by giving you the chance to be good by encouraging you in what's good by seeing your your beauty and your strength in what's good and by carefully and skillfully telling you when it's not so good <laughs> saying I think you lost it a bit there um, you know, what was happening for you you seem to have, you know, I felt just kind of suggesting. So the good friend is someone who can can support you in the good and also help you to see the the places where you go off, the weak spots, the points where one gets blind. And, he said, and the Buddha said, without this, you really it's really difficult. So he actually made spiritual friendship uh, a a prerequisite. There's a kind of list of of requisites for enlightenment. First one is one is prepared to live according to moral precepts. 
The second fundamental requisite is you have spiritual friends. So without this, it's, re- it's going to be really difficult for you. You know, because uh, I think Ajahn Chah once put it very succinctly in his Ajahn Chah way, was saying, um, to listen to your own teachings is, a, is, the, is the slowest way to learn. <laughs> you know, you get it all written in a book, you've got this kind of thing going in your head about the way it is, the way it should be. No, <laughs> that's not the way you do it. <laughs> so you can't really learn it from books. You have to have, in a way, what I recommend is you have the texts, which are certainly very useful. You have the living teachers, the transmission, the modelers, the exemplars, and you have your own mind. You put the three together, yeah, then you've got results. You don't have those three together, it ain't going to happen. You know, if you've just got the text and you're not applying it to your own mind, it doesn't work. If your texts and your own mind that's quite good, but still, you know, it, it's probably going to just stay up. Not going to, the Buddhism's not going to descend below the neck. <laughs> you know, you'll have it all clear in here. It comes down to the emotions and the sensual appetites and the real reflex stuff. It isn't going to get there. And that's what spiritual friends are for, because this is really where we've all learnt as human beings, isn't it? You know? when we spent the first few years, you, you learn from seeing what other people do, and you pick up their moods, and you pick up their energies. If you're in a place where people are shouting and arguing all the time, you get pretty jumpy and nervy and insecure, if, if they're not directing at you. If you live in a place where people are uh, living in wise, mature ways, you, your whole system gets cultivated and trained and set at that particular level. It's a process of um, osmosis. You just pick up what's going on around you. That's how we learn language, that's how we learn mannerisms, that's how we learn to you know, bring forth. I don't know what I sound like, you know, what, it, what, it, how, what works. I bring something forth and somebody says, I didn't get that, I can learn. If I don't get that, I've got no idea. Yeah? So you can have some sounding board for what you bring forth in your life. And then you can get a recognition of, oh, there was some, you know, aversion in that, or conceit in that, or insensitivity, or whatever, you you learn, otherwise you don't. So, the Buddha, in fact, said, you know, you have to have this basis of spiritual friendship. And he said, there is, you know, it starts off, uh, and there's a lovely uh, series of qualities the Buddha said make up the good friend. Uh, Someone, first is, they give what is difficult to give. They give you what is difficult to give. They give their best to you. They give what is difficult to give. They give you their time. They give you their attention. They give you their heart. When in fact something is like, oh, just for me, you know, no, you know. You give that someone you want to be a friend to. You give them that. They do what's difficult to do. They make an effort for you. They do something for your welfare. Hmm. They don't just think of themselves. They put themselves out. They walk the extra mile. They endure what is difficult to endure. 
And perhaps, you know, something we very much take for granted is just how much sheer endurance is required of a parent. Just the ability to endure. Basically bear with a little sprawling little lump of humanity that doesn't know a thing about time, place, convenience, manners, you know, doesn't even know toilets. And you've got to kind of do the whole bit for them any time of the day or night for, well, two or three years, sometimes 20 years. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to actually, and you've got to be prepared to do that. It's just sheer being tired and, and stressed and so forth. But being prepared to endure for the sake of another being. That's the good friend. It's not just a light matter, is it? Someone who reveals their secrets, their confidences to you. They're, they are someone who will share their hearts with you. And that's a, a sign of a good friend. You know? It's not just a shallow matter of what's, you know, saying, passing each other, hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, do you remember what this, you know, this kind of purely conversational thing, someone who can share. So you get a sense of, of there's something very beautiful about um, someone sharing their confidences with you. You feel privileged, you feel someone is taking you into their life. Hmm. Someone who keeps your secrets so that you, you tell them your secret, they, you don't find other people whispering it around. They keep, they keep, they protect you from that. So you feel you can divulge to them. Someone who, um, when misfortune strikes you, you know, when you either, you have an accident or you, or you have difficult mental states, you have difficult stresses and so forth, they don't, they don't abandon you. They don't dump you. They don't give up on you. And when you're down and out, the Buddha says, when you're down and out, they don't look down on you. They don't, they don't despise you when you lose it altogether, either materially or whatever ways in which we can find ourselves very much dropping below the standard that we like to be at. A good friend is someone who stays with you through that, can help you rise up again. And this is very important for when the times are bad, because when the times are bad, often we feel a sense of pointlessness or despair or uselessness, and we don't give up on ourselves. Mm. What's the point? You know, this is where people start hitting the bottle, grabbing for the pills, or even killing themselves. You know. So human beings are the one that few species that have these self-destruct programs in them. When, uh, you know, they just can't bear to be with themselves anymore. And so, you know, in milder ways, many people do that a good part of the day, just blot out, rather than have to be with the agitation or the tension or the worries of their lives. So when we abandon ourselves, the good friend is the one who doesn't abandon you, who tells you still you're worth being with, you have something, that you're worth because you're a human being, and you can rise up. This is, this is not a light matter. Because if we abandon ourselves, in, you know, 
Because when you abandon yourself, you really need a friend. <laughs> when you give up on yourself, when you really need a friend. And there are times when those kind of things happen to us, when we are deeply hurt or confused or de- deprived, and we, we do tend to, we can easily give up on ourselves. This is, if you like, the kind of the, the, the fundamental requirement just to more or less stay, stay present as a human being, to be aware, as, to be with yourself as a human being. And so the, the friend is, friends are the people who, who, who help you to do that. And uh, if you don't have any, um, <laughs> you know, it's, you better start looking round for some. <laughs> That's what, this is in a way what uh, the, uh, one of the reasons why Monasteries are popular. The way you know why monasteries got established was so that not just so that the summoners could have a place to live, but also that lay people could gather round and feel, get some nourishment, get some medicines, if you like, for their hearts, meet each other, feel you know, feel that sense of community. And though the Buddha certainly set things up with the summoners as the leaders. Still, it's like they're, they're the or, two organs of the body, but the whole Buddhist body is, contains these four organs, the male, the female, um, mendicants, the male and female householders, and some they offer different kinds of food and nourishment and, and care for each other. And then you've got something that's really strong and intact. You've got a whole body, a whole human body. Mm. And these are places now that... that uh, Represent that that sort of uh, sense. This hall was built for that purpose, so that you can come in, you can feel there's a place for you, there's a place where you can be with yourself. There's other people who are practicing. There's a sense of safety, morality. There's a lot of generosity shown, and there's also there's a sense of there are standards here. You know, it's not just a hangout place. It's a place where we're encouraged to. Consider, rise up, be responsible, be mature, make efforts, you know, really bring up your best. Mm. Uh, if you like, this is a, also a sign of friendship. We don't want you to abandon yourself. <laughs> we want you to see your goodness. We want you to remember that. We want you to train it and develop it. Otherwise, all the friends in the world aren't going to help you if you can't pick up what they're trying to offer you, you know. So to be a friend to yourself, that is someone who can actually take on, receive the encouragement, and then take on the learning to make yourself strong, to, to there you can be with yourself, or awakening. Hmm. So it's not a it's not a small matter. What does it uh, take to be a, a, a spiritual friend? And uh, there are certain things that happen quite naturally, actually. Yeah. Uh, like loving-kindness is really quite a natural thing. Mm. Compassion is quite a natural thing. 
appreciation, uh, joyful appreciation of other people's benefits is a natural thing. Uh, a sense of having even, even flexible uh, mind, equanimity it means we can this or that. It's okay. I can go with this. We can change. We can adapt. That's those. Those are natural qualities. But so often something gets in the way of them happening. These are, if you like, the natural expressions of healthy relationship. Healthy, not just not just morally good, but healthy means I can actually feel some enjoyment out of your welfare, and uh, I like that. So when I see other people getting gifts, I feel happy. It's very nice to be able to make offerings to see other people getting given things, and that makes me feel good. Uh, compassion, when we see other, other beings suffer, we feel a sense of, uh, oh, may they be protected. You hear someone sick or in dire straits, something and you doesn't want it to happen. You want to offer something to protect them from that. When you see a way in which you can give nourishment and provide for other creatures' welfare, there's something that's, that really finds that extremely enjoyable. Metta, the nourishing. You know, you put food out for the birds, you know, <laughs> give food to the monks. It's a sort of similar thing, you know, <laughs> cute little creatures. <laughs> and it kind of really nice. So these are quite natural things. When you, when, when you notice when that happens, generally it means you're in a pretty okay state yourself. You feel quite comfortable in yourself and when you're, when you're not comfortable in yourself you get into this well, nobody does that for me why should I bother she doesn't deserve it anyway you know, I've given all my time and nobody ever thinks of me <laughs> you know all these kinds of, you start measuring people in terms of whether they're worth it, deserve it, whether you need to do it how much it's going to cost you and these kind of things oh. How, do you, how does that feel? What does it feel when your mind's like that? Do, do you enjoy yourself in that state? I, I can relate to these states of mind. And if I look in the mirror in those states, those states of mind, I think, oh, I don't like him very much. He's having a bad, you know, having a bad day. Some, there's some stress there. There's some um, problems there. So what's happening? You know? Why aren't we actually just really in this more beautiful, happy state where life would really be rather wonderful. Now you can imagine a planet of seven, seven billion human beings who got a kick out of helping each other. <laughs> You'd rather feel right, wouldn't it? <laughs> Instead of, I don't know how many billion people is kind of you know, quarrelling and fighting over bits of territory and religious differences and he hit me first and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then beating each other up. So, you know, so there's, there's these obstacles and the, the Buddha's saying really, you know, certainly you can kind of enhance these qualities of loving kindness and so forth. Just keep coming back to that and remembering that. Feeling it. Recognizing if you if you can't if that's not there for you something something's off something's out of tune. There's, you've got some problems. 
And so therefore what you really need is those qualities that help you to be a friend and to receive others' friendship. And he said essentially this is the practice of uh, insight. You start to look into the blocks that we have and they all basically center around a kind of rather strange thing that we all experience. (laughs) It's called little me. (laughs) And sometimes little me you can hear as a kind of voice in the head. You know, it mutters and it plans and it, it fantasizes and it wants and it has opinions and it squabbles and it doesn't see this and it doesn't think that and it just goes on and on and on and it's, uh, it never really does you any good little me it's this uh, little me which we so take to be some kind of undying self or essence or true person um, is really just a, a kind of set of tape recordings and programs built based upon stress suffering, dis-ease, misunderstanding, short-sightedness, um, afflictions. It's a kind of defensive uh, defensive quality, which means somehow it's not, we don't, we don't feel comfortable where we are, so something that retracts into this internal dark monologue. Sometimes it can come into this uh, very unpleasant creature called the inner tyrant who you may have met occasionally, the inner tyrant is saying you never do this on time there you go again you idiot <laughs> when are you ever going to get it together you know what you should be yeah. and then you do something good you just did that so you could have other people praise you, didn't you, you know, so, and if you do something well then it doesn't notice but it sure notices, you dropped a cup again you idiot and who, you know, it's this kind of complaining thing, and it's always just demanding that you you keep lifting the, raising the bar to higher and higher standards, uh, unforgiving, and it's based upon you know your how well you can perform. This thing can be driving people's lives, you know, the success-oriented person, the goal-oriented person. Hmm. A friend of mine, um, I think, uh, anyway, stories of two young men. Mm. One young man was kind of a little bit sort of late, you know, laid back at school. He wasn't really pushing himself at school. He was kind of taking his time, operating his own pace. And his mother thinking, oh dear, you know, you're never going to get on in life, you know. The other young man was a real bright kid. He's pushing himself for did extra extra homework, extra, extra everything. So that when he finished school, got to university, came to university, he was immediately kind of moving upwardly mobile and this guy worked all the hours ever God ever sent, you know, to be a real winner. And the other chap was just more or less you know, just taking his time, doing what he wanted and and uh, not doing anything really wrong, but just not really didn't really seem to be pushing himself. Anyway, and uh, so the the mother of the of the less 
goal-oriented youth was always feeling a bit despondent about her, her son not really being up to much. And the other mother of the, of the successful youth was feeling very proud of her son. Till one day, got a phone call, and they found that the, uh, the young man, the successful young man in his office, had just taken a gun to his head and shot, shot himself. And the other mother thought, well, thank goodness my son was just a little bit laid back. (laughs) The kind of the drive to be the best. And you do see people crack up under this. Something in us is able to push past what our natural boundaries are. Perhaps not even aware of our natural boundaries their natural limitations. We have this ferocious thing called willpower, which is a useful tool for certain circumstances. You know, you twist your ankle and you're out on a mountain, you just got to grit your teeth and struggle and, and make will, willful effort. What willpower does is it means for that time you just shut off your feeling you shut off your, your, you narrow your your awareness to a single point, and you go for that, and you just override everything else. You know, athletes do it all the time, and so on. Uh, soldiers do it a lot, uh, and that's exactly what it's about. But if you if you if you overdo it, the problem is you lose receptivity with willpower. You lose sensitivity. You lose breadth. So you don't really feel. You don't take in very much. And once we start to get into huge goal senses, driven goal senses, got to get there, got to get there, this is the kind of thing that starts to happen. You get so focused and so willful that you lose a sense of really, you know, a broader sensitivity to the, the full complexities of what we have as a human being. You're no longer a friend to yourself. <coughs> mm. And it's something, certainly, that we are aware of in, in uh, kind of people who take a vocation, such as this one, to just be aware of people who can have a lot of, of good intentions and good qualities. Uh, and then you put this thing, you know, Nibbana, up on the shrine and go for it. <laughs> I'm going to get there, you know, right, you know whatever. And uh, people just start to crack up because uh, they're only getting, if they're only, this is the only bit up in the head. And they've kind of cut off all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's particularly, you know, the, the more the case perhaps in, in our. Uh, well, Western orientations, where there's a lot of this competition, be a success, get places, be the winner, up and running, upwardly mobile, get ahead. So these kind of phrases for people. I forgot. I don't know what the current ones are. You know, where kids are having nervous breakdowns at the age of 16 because <laughs> they got to make sure they get their careers worked out. You know, whatever happened to childhood innocence? Uh, 
so that, that without any particular people already in this sort of state of of um, like a driven they've normalized it so you don't even know you're doing it it's just normal to be that kind of pushing ahead and all kinds of bits of their mind and heart they've left behind and that's what willpower does it leaves a bit of you out of the picture so you leave aside your kind of tender-heartedness or your uh, playfulness or your um, you know even your quietness even your, your gentleness and instead is left this, this sort of sense of the the driven quality so often you know, to recommend to people just try to spend some time every day doing nothing a sort of thing I, a phrase I have is a day when you didn't spend 15 minutes doing nothing is a day wasted <laughs> how much nothing have you done today not all day, you know, but for me that's really a practice. Fifteen minutes doing nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing useful, nothing purposeful, not even meditating, just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> just to feel what's, what, what's happening here anyway, before I get another little target on my hit list of things I've got to achieve today. You know, rack up the hours of Anapanasati, unremitting mindfulness kill a few defilements, eradicate chalases, strangle a fetter or two, save a few sentient beings, and end up a nervous wreck at the end of the day. <laughs> so it's a day, you know, when you can't just have maybe ten minutes doing nothing without feeling slightly naughty about it, slightly guilty about it. And sometimes I do feel a bit naughty. Yeah, maybe somebody sees me doing nothing. <laughs> you know? So I try to make a practice out of it. I actually got a desk. I put deliberately put my feet up on the desk just to get into the mood. Because <laughs> now, as a Buddhist monk, sitting down is big business. You know, you know, for sit down, this means business. It doesn't mean doing nothing. It means sitting still is big business. The biggest business I've got. So I can't do that. They're going to this make something out of it mode. So I have to kind of sit in the chair, put my feet up, lean back, look out the window, and go slightly vacant. <laughs> and feel this, you know, but then it's quite interesting because within that I can notice these actually sense, you know, qualities of relief or sometimes feel a little sad. Some sadness, some relief. I don't have to figure out, I just let it happen and let almost it's almost like letting the energies just change gear so we kind of gear down to to bottom gear and just really see as you do when you, you go down to the the limits of it just what this what's in the system because if you're always loading things on top of the system loading new programs loading new agendas loading new ideas loading new goals you don't really you can always miss the system, you miss what's, the, what's actually there, you know, in, in terms of the mind itself, right? You know, 
It's like you, you, you don't you put so much stuff on it. That you, what's it like when the mind is kind of naked? You know, what's there? Shouldn't I, go, shouldn't I be aware of that? As <coughs> mm. just checking in. When we think of the, the, the Buddha's recommendation, viveka, non-attachment, or stepping back, I like to think of it as stepping back, it means just getting things in perspective, step back. You know? Now, you know, this non-attachment is not a particular thing, it's just that it's, the important thing is the ability to shift gear. And there are a range of gear shifts that the Buddha recommended, which are not about particular objects or states or functions, but just how to operate them. The first one is non-attachment. You actually just pull back a gear or two. From non-attachment, non-attachment to what? To sense data? Non-attachment to the kind of compulsive programs we have going. You sit there and think, oh, I should feed the cat. Oh, I should clean the windows. Oh, I better phone so-and-so. Where have I put my pen? Oh, look, there's a stain on the carpet. Oh, no, twitch, twitch, twitch. <laughs> you know, do something useful. This kind of kick, twitch, twitch, twitch. You can feel this, this volitional twitch, like a nerve, like a nervous tick in the mind. Non-attachment, just actually, uh-huh, and not reacting to it not criticizing and not adding to it, just, hmm, there's that. You step back. And as you, whenever, you, whenever you do so, then what occurs in that stepping back is there's room for a little more breadth of sensitivity to occur. This is not a surgery job. Non-attachment is not surgery, it's a, it's a shift of gear and as you come out of the willfulness you know, you come into a greatest because the will is, is the thing that anaesthetizes your sensitivity as you come out of that will to do there's a larger sensitivity and you can sense things that you may not have really been aware of you can sense perhaps your own fatigue sometimes your own uh, worry sometimes, your own uh, nervousness sometimes, you weren't really aware of because you were actually running on it. And that's is where immediately it's almost like you start to, to descend from your head, which is the driven driving bit, you come down into your heart. Yeah. And so naturally, as soon as you come down into your heart, you become more empathic. The natural quality of the heart starts to speak when we come out of our heads. You don't have to, not another thing you have to do, not an hour of loving kindness and goodness. But it's a natural quality when you, <laughs> you come out of your head into your heart. Oh, oh. you know, it, it happens quite naturally by itself. Mm, empathic. And with that, uh, gives you a much broader sense of, of uh, feeling and sensitivity on that level. And you can't, this is important because you can't really progress 
you can't really develop. You can't development's not going to occur unless all of you is present. Yeah. So it's both your your intellectual rational side and also your irrational side, your emotive side, which is of paramount importance because this is where the the, the worry senses, the happinesses, you know, it's it's a heart feeling, the sense of confidence is a heart feeling, the sense of even determination is a heart feeling. This is where it all comes from. As a natural quality, where we're inspired. We're inspired through our hearts. We feel faith in our hearts. We feel gladness in our hearts. We feel love in our hearts. Unless you get there, these things don't happen. And if these things don't happen, your life is a pretty metallic, thin experience. It's just a function, isn't it? So to be a good friend to yourself, you want to be able to come into your own wealth, your own richness, not to lose that in doing too much, in trying too much, in trying to be too much, in trying to solve too much, trying to work too much, trying to fix other people too much. To not, you know, we come into our hearts as a, become more present with ourselves. And you begin to, with that fullness, a lot of you begins to calm down. This is where it's important to understand the qualities of calm are heart qualities. You don't get calm by, sh- by sh- suppressing all your thoughts or by telling yourself to calm down, calm down, calm down. You get calm because you feel kind of, feel kind of okay. <laughs> and you feel okay because you're getting this rather pleasant current of warm, contented, spacious feeling in your heart. Because you're not particularly trying to make anything happen, or so that the heart opens up. So calm arises from a full heart. The full heart arises when we let go of the driven, driving, I must get, I must do programs. And, we be, and then the fullness of heart occurs. This is the, where we uh, are most um, empathic. I remember reading a story, an account of a, written by a field worker who was working in the Amazon basin studying tribes in the Amazon basin. These tribes also thought he was very strange studying them. <laughs> and he said he, he went to one tribe, he said they had this strange kind of game or race or contest they used to do. And he couldn't figure out what it was, what the rules were. Because there, were the, they, there was this tribe of people and they just bunch up into a couple of teams and they both go and find these, a log, a big log in the forest. And the logs weren't the same size. You know, logs aren't the same size. And the teams weren't the same size. Some would have ten people, some would have eight people. Some would have some pretty old people, some would have some young people. There'd be men and women mixed up in these teams. The teams are not obviously of equal strength, and the logs weren't of equal weight. But what would happen is these two teams each would grab hold of a log, you know, say eight people grab hold of this log, hoist it on their shoulders and start running. And the other team would pick up a log, 
put it in their shoulders and start running. They both start running towards this finishing line, which was, I don't know, you know, 100 metres ahead. They were running away like crazy. And as one team pulled ahead, somebody from that team left that team and joined the other team. <laughs> I think, what's going on here? The teams, and they kept, these people just kept swapping about from team to team. You know, and everyone's really working hard, but there's this continual sense of the teams changing all the time. So they got to the finishing line, and the people standing at the finishing line get very excited. And there'd be this big hullabaloo as they, they came past the winning post. And after a while, he watching this a few days, he began to figure out what the aim of this game was. The aim of the game was to see if they could both get there at the same time. <laughs> and for a Western, that was just took a long while to figure that out because you're so into the idea that somebody's going to win. And I, you know, this is the winning team. And you realise, you know, what's the point of that? What's the point of it? You win, you lose. That means if you've won, you've lost. You're, you, one side is miserable. The people who won have a kind of burst of euphoria, but then have got to make sure they win again. There's some jealousy from the other side. Over what? But win this other game, no winners, no losers, everybody happy. Everybody, and it wasn't just the casual thing. It took quite a lot of willpower, discernment, agility, flexibility to have and cooperation to have this happen. But the main thing was that everybody had a sense of, we want this to work for everybody because that's how we feel best. We don't want this to work just for me because that's not going to do me any good. You think, well, where do these people come from? You know, <laughs> could we have them join the United Nations? <laughs> you know, you don't need, you don't, they didn't need a kind of rule book. They didn't need uh, uh, fifteen articles and declarations, and they just did it through empathy. You know, that's the greatest thing we have going, isn't it? Each one of us mon can monitor you know, our own strengths and weaknesses, look at other people and just think, well, I want them to, I want to be the same as them. I don't want to be ahead of them. Because that's, that's more fun. And uh, wouldn't that be nice if we could do that? Hmm. And it's not for some kind of you know, ideal, ideological position of it should be this way, it should be fair, just because we love each other and we feel better that way. Mm. So this sense of, of rich empathy is what means you, you, you give rise to the sense of dispassion towards your, your own little meanness with its pushing and its wanting and its squabbling and its demanding and it's railing and it's jealousies and it's I want one of these and this narcissism you know the story of Narcissus the beautiful boy or who fell in love with his own image you know, so all he could see was his own image looking in the pond he saw this beautiful boy and all he could see was that he couldn't see anything more than that and this is what little me does it's continue doing things so it can look at itself and say, oh, pretty good. <laughs> or, how's that? Do you think I'm pretty good, huh? <laughs> look at me. You know? 
uh, or I'm on the winning team. You know? And it gets very, very unpleasant if he doesn't get that. You know, so this is a kind of uh, uh, an ailment of the deluded mind. And, uh, you know, you need to have some, to recognize that in oneself and grow dispassionate towards those emotions that come up like that. I think most of us can experience these times when the, the mind starts raging or complaining or wailing or demanding or overwhelmed with passion. And just all it takes to kind of be big enough to be with that without abandoning yourself or beating yourself up. This is why the basic training is you give what's hard to give. You do what's hard to do. You bear with what's hard to bear with. You don't look down on yourself. You don't abandon yourself. You don't uh, badmouth yourself. Then you're a good friend. And it's not even a matter now whether you do it to someone else or whether you're just doing it to yourself all the time. With uh, non-attachment, we can come to the place where there's empathy. When there's empathy, dispassion becomes possible. The sense of uh, real ease and non-reactivity, non-emotional reactivity to some of the things that occur for us. And as you uh, meditate more, and as the process of meditation goes on, with what it does, the process of insight, of introspection, these, these things become absolutely paramount. The message of spiritual friendship is not just for beginners, as a kind of foundation thing. It's truly the case that as we, as we meditate, we come into areas of our minds that we were barely aware of uh, on the spectrum. Experiences sometimes of deep disorient, disorientation. Particularly in renunciate life, this happens very quickly. But any meditator is to some extent a renunciant, just by that fact alone. You're kind of stopping things, cutting off things, focusing, letting go of sense contact. And so when you do that, there is disorientation. There's some sense in which the normal things that one was feeding on are no longer available. The normal distractions, the normal inputs are no longer there. The normal senses of what gives us pleasure and enthusiasm are no longer there. So the system feels a bit out of whack. When it feels out of whack, there's some instability. And in that instability, what are called latent tendencies start arising. In a way, this, this is what's supposed to happen. These latent tendencies, tendencies towards fear, towards greed, towards rage, towards, uh, um, you know, all kinds of things, almost uh, reflexes. They just come welling up. It's not something you decide to do, they just come welling up. They happen to you. And this is a very common experience for meditators. And most meditators think, there's something wrong with me, you know. If you like, the inner tyrant comes in. You're supposed to be mindful. You're supposed to be concentrated. You're supposed to be in fourth jhana by now and so on, which is about the least 
helpful thing you can do. <laughs> this is why you've got to get out of that box. <laughs> you've got to get out of that driven thing. And any any way you can get out of it, you know, you've got to get out of it. You've got to come to into your, your empathic heart. Because in the process of meditation, as you begin, as renunciation and sense restraint comes in, you get disoriented and these latent tendencies arise, they come welling up. These are tendencies that are, we've been, are inherent in being born. Hmm. A lot of the time they're just not, they don't come in because we've got, they, they're kind of siphoned off into the various things we can do. Or they're, they're just held down by willpower, like the young lad who killed himself. All of us have that possibility. All of us have those, those triggers. All of us have the capacity to kill, each, kill ourselves and kill each other. All of us have, can be depressed. All of us can be terribly frightened and alone. All of us can be raging. Normally, hopefully, that doesn't happen. Or it does, but in meditation, those tendencies will arise. Tendencies when you just really want to abandon yourself and get the hell out of this life. You can't stand it. There's tendencies when you just feel very frightened and very alone. And if you don't have a friend, you are in trouble. And essentially, you know, it's great if you've got an external friend who's just prepared to. Just be there with you. So you get to give you some reference to that which is steady and stable and non-reactive. But the most important thing is that you've got, you've got some sense of how to be a friend to yourself. And this is where, of course, all the, all the efforts we've done to be friends to other people, to, be, to radiate those qualities, this is where you really, you know, bear enormous fruit because you've begun to understand what it's like to just be a patient listener, what it's like to, to uh, receive other people's um, you know, less positive states, and then some way in which you can at least have a feeling for receiving your own. This is because, you know, you take it even further back, all of us are born, and we are born conscious. Uh, this is hardly news, I'm sure. But do you know what that means? Do you know what that implies? What consciousness is, really? Because we're in it all the time, aren't we? Yeah. It's consciousness is, means there's the sense of me and something else happens. The sense of me and I'm seeing something. There's a sight and there's a me seeing it. There's a sound and I'm hearing it. There's a touch, and I'm touching. I'm being touched. There's always a subject, and there's always an object. That's consciousness. Hmm? Yeah. So, as we form in the womb, then we're, you know, our consciousness is coming into being, and it's receiving all kinds of messages about life from the mother, generally. Messages of, you're welcome here. It's good to have you around. You know, it's, it's a free board and lodging. And it's, nobody's giving you a hard time in there. 
So you're getting these kind of messages. Sometimes mothers, women who are carrying children really have to think very fully for themselves about what they're carrying. You know, because if they're in a bad mood, then the baby gets a shot too through the, through the hormones. So we, in a way, we are formed by what's around us. We come into being through what's around us. We get a basic sense of what it's like, who we are from what's around us. Whether we are welcome here, whether it's safe here, whether it's, there's room for me here. That comes from what's around you. That's, that's how your consciousness is set. That's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's where it's set. It's set at that kind of parameters. And as you, as you are born, as you emerge into the outside world, you're still looking for those kind of messages. Is it okay here? Am I welcome here? Is it safe here? And you keep asking that for a lifetime. You know, you don't verbally ask for it, but you look around. Looks a bit heavy. What's the rules? You know, you come to the monastery. Everything is slightly. You know, it's okay. Welcome, safe. Interrupted. Going to be blamed, criticised. Not good enough. <laughs> you know, when we come to something new. Those are the kind of messages that come up, aren't they? You come to something new, and something says, "Is it okay to be here? Am I all right here?" Is it safe? Is it going to be enjoyable? Is it worth sticking around for a few minutes to find out? That's consciousness. That's, that's the setting point. That's there all the time. So we're all the time, we are a something within something else. And we need that something else to keep giving us the feeling of okay. If you don't have that feeling of okay, then what you do is you just blot out everything else. This is what the willpower does. It just says, I don't care whether you like me or not, I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know? That's what will does. It cuts out the other, or attempts to cut out the other. If you just run on willpower, then there's no sense of other. This is why when your willpower gives up, you know, when you run out of willpower, you're in the desert because you've never actually sensed the, the, the other. It's always been me doing my thing, getting my way according to my opinions of how it should be, and what I'm going to get, and what I need, and what it says in the book is this, and get out of my way because I need to do this, and so forth. That's what willpower does. It's, I'm not going to pick up anything, because I don't need anything from you. I'm all right on my own, thanks. I'm getting on, I know what to do, get out of my way. That's the willpower thing. And it's pretty convincing, intellectually. And we, to follow that is uh, definitely dangerous because uh, it doesn't take you to Nibbana. It can't. It can't take you to dispassion. It can't take you to cessation, to letting go. Willpower doesn't know how to let go. It doesn't have a letting go bone in its body. <laughs> it has cutting off. It has <laughs> suppressing and cutting off, but it doesn't have letting go in it. <laughs> it has things that call themselves letting go, but it doesn't have letting go because it can't do it. Letting go is exactly that sense of the relinquishment of the will 
and we relinquish will because I kind of like it here. I can pick up something what's around me. I feel safe. I feel trusted. I feel okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't need to make anything happen right now. I don't need to do anything right now. Mind calms down. Things soften. These self programs start to futter out because they don't have anything to get going on. You don't have to keep inventing yourself every moment when things are okay. So our sense of what the other is is very important to pick up. And, so, and you know, this isn't necessarily relating specifically to you, know, you people out there as individuals, but to the general sense I have of if you like, the, life, the life statement. Yeah. And you can, you can notice it because you may come into a situation where there's 50 people and somebody says, oh... They're a bit funny, weren't they? And you go, no, I thought they were kind of nice, actually. And somebody else says, did you notice that person who did that? And no, I didn't notice that. And everybody picks up the bit that represents their own life statement. When I was on this walk, long walk in India with my friend Nick, um, we had an interesting combination because I could see all the things that could go wrong and he could see all the things that could go right. So when he became in a situation, he said, oh, well, this will work, that'll be fine, we'll get through that. I said, well, Nick, careful, because there's this and that and this might go wrong, and, you know, that probably isn't going to happen, we won't have enough of this. And he said, oh, well, that will sort itself out, you know. So he's a kind of, he's born in a world of complete optimism. He carries that around. I'm born in a world of pessimism. <laughs> So I see the things that can go wrong and are wrong. And he sees the things that could go right and are right. Together, we made a very interesting combination. Because every day we just went through completely different pieces of landscape, even though we were walking you know, 10 feet away from each other. And neither of them are true, actually. Yeah. But you begin to at least recognise you know, what... What your, what your life statements are from seeing how you see other people you know, what you see other people as whether you feel a bit threatened a bit dismissive, slightly nervous a bit intimidated or what particular characteristics make you feel those ways you feel welcomed, enjoyed, appreciated you know, cared for whether you see that and you begin to see some of your life messages coming up and they, you can have two or three and you recognise when you're starting to get into the message of everybody around here hates me and it's no good, <laughs> you're coming into your, your wonky area. <laughs> you need to get a friend quick. <laughs> in yourself or in other people, find the friendly place because, you know, these, it's, it's so convincing and it can capture you completely. And you end up getting into very, very um, stuck states. So for a spiritual friendship, really, you need to have that encouragement to develop this sense of non-attachment, stepping back, at least acknowledging one's own programs, one's own life messages, one's own sense of being a victim, you know, 
or being a burden or being uh, being unworthy you know just I mean, you know where did that come from as a life statement and then dispassion so you get the sense of grandness of heart to let that fade out listen to it let it fade out until you get the, the what's called stopping or ceasing when the mind comes into a state of quiescence it's not actually you know making statements there's emotional equilibrium and uh, in that we are no longer in creating ourselves so there's a sense of relinquishment of self-view that occurs with that and this is what um, arises from spiritual friendship is dependent upon spiritual friendship is the pinnacle and the final aim of spiritual friendship that is the complete relinquishment of self-view of becoming of craving of sorrow and despair this is why the Buddha teaches it it's not a small matter it's a large matter So in your life, you know, there's look around to who you can find who can help you to see yourself, who genuinely wishes for your well-being, but is also able to say, well, um, wait a minute. When you said that, you know, just look at that. You know, when you had that assumption about somebody else, just look at that. I, that seemed, to be, you know, when you come and you're reactive, and you and you your knee-jerk reflex is something to say, just check on that, will you? Look at that in yourself. Not trying to hurt you, but trying to help you. Uh, and if you don't, if, and so if you can't find people like that, then at least to, 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 to not bond yourself to people who are going to drag you down. Who can tell you it doesn't matter? Who can tell you it's it's all right? Tell you not to bother? Those those people are not going to help you wake up. So strange enough, you know, some of our spiritual friendship is not terribly much about even a lot of chat, a lot of bonding together, but just sustaining a space where we can begin to pick up those messages. Look carefully at what you think, what you do, what you say, what you feel. Don't react to it. Don't buy into it. Don't give up on yourself. Witness that. Work with that. It'll be for your benefit and for the benefit of all people. Because as you become clearer and wiser and more a friend to yourself, and of course, you've got far more capacity to be wiser and a greater friend to other people. Hmm. So I offer this for your reflection.